0: Good evening to you. I'm Sarah Seidner. Welcome to CNN Tonight. The grand jury investigating Donald Trump and his allies over efforts to upend Joe Biden's election victory is expected to meet again tomorrow. CNN exclusively learning prosecutors are asking witnesses about a never-before-revealed Oval Office meeting in February of 2022 where Donald Trump praised election security protections. But then just a few weeks later started spreading false voter fraud conspiracy theories. What else has Jack Smith learned? And will it lead to Trump's third indictment? That's tomorrow's news tonight. Also ahead for you, a momentous time in U.S. history finally getting its due. President Joe Biden is expected to sign a proclamation tomorrow establishing a national monument honoring Emmett Till and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, on what would have been Emmett's 82nd birthday. Till was kidnapped, tortured, and murdered at the age of 14 in 1955. His death shocked America. It also helped fuel the civil rights movement. When his mother insisted on an open casket funeral so everybody would know what hatred and racism can do. Tonight, I'll talk to Emmett Till's cousin about what all this means to the Till family. Also, driving while black, an unarmed black truck driver pulled over and attacked by a police dog even though... He had his hands up and was surrendering. The whole disturbing episode was caught on camera. I want to warn you, the video is very disturbing and difficult to watch.
1: Do not release the dog with his hands up. Do not release the dog with his hands up. Do not release the dog with his hands up. Do not, do not, do not. Get the dog off of it! Get the dog, Get the dog, off. dog off of it. Get the
2: dog!
0: We'll have much more on that disturbing video on what happened there ahead, but let's begin with tomorrow's news tonight. The grand jury and special counsel Jack Smith's investigation of efforts to overturn the 2020 election is expected to meet tomorrow, as we're learning about that Oval Office meeting where Donald Trump praised American election security. Here to discuss all of this, former Trump White House lawyer James Schultz, and CNN legal analyst Karen Friedman Agnifilo. I knew I was going to mess that up, girl. I'm sorry. Uh, Jim, CNN's exclusive reporting, we just talked about it, is that Trump was praising the election security in that Oval Office meeting, even suggesting the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security hold a press conference taking credit for it. What can prosecutors do with this or glean from this as later on, a few weeks later, he said it was a fraudulent election and that someone stole it from him.
3: Look, they're looking for every shred of evidence that can establish that Donald Trump truly believed that this was a fair election and that his claims that the election was stolen were bogus. So of course they're gonna look at meetings that he had prior to the election, meetings that he had after the election, claims that he made, things that people told him specifically about the fairness of the election. Documents that he may have seen relative to other to lawsuits that went on uh, as it relates to the election. They're looking for every shred of evidence that could show that he he either thought in his mind that that election was stolen or and that he was that he was making up the fact that the election was making up the fact that the election was stolen.
0: Okay, so they're looking at all of this evidence. Karen, um, Trump did criticize election security, of course, in the months that followed. And I want people to listen to some of what he said.
3: I don't want to see a crooked election. This election will be the most rigged election in history. They know it's it's going to be fraudulent. It's going to be fraud
0: all over the place. I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots and the ballots are a disaster. All right. So that was in September 2020 before the election happened. And there was this whole idea that he was sort of getting people to the point where they thought, oh, this is this is rigged, before it even happened. And then after, of course, he went on and on. Can Trump just change his mind? Can, can prosecutors say, okay, well, he believed this then, now he believes this? But- can they argue in the defense, hey, he changed his mind, he, he learned some things, and now he
4: actually believed that he lost, that he didn't lose? Look, at the end of the day, whether he believed it or not, it's it's going to be helpful information. But even if he did believe in his mind that he won, despite all of the evidence that I'm sure Jack Smith will show is to the contrary, even if, if he says he did believe it, it still doesn't give him the right to interfere with the election, to disenfranchise 80-something million voters who cast a valid vote for Joe Biden. And Trump just didn't like the result. And so he doesn't have a right. I mean, that's the very foundation of our democracy, right? You you win or you lose and you accept the, the consequences of that. And, and so what he believed at the end of the day I think Jack Smith's going to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that there's no way he could have believed it. Mm -hmm. But I think it also doesn't give him a right to interfere with the election.
0: No matter what it is he believed. Um, Jim, I want to go to you. We're we're learning that the special counsel uh, got thousands of documents uh, turned over by Trump ally and former New York police commissioner uh, Bernie Kurick. This is related to efforts with Rudy Giuliani to try uh, to find voter fraud. And we remember Rudy coming out and, and sort of talking about, um, about that. What do you think Jack Smith is zeroing in on in that part of the case?
3: Look, if you recall, they were, they were doing investigations to try to bring lawsuits in particular states, states like Pennsylvania, my home state, to overturn, to attempt to overturn the outcome of the election based upon voter fraud. That information, the the results of those investigations, you know, they resulted on the cases getting tossed out almost immediately for lack of any evidence. Right. So that is evidence that they can use against the former president in their case that he was attempting to over that he that one, he was trying to overturn the outcome of a of a valid election. And that, two he knew what he was up to.
0: That all makes sense. I have a question. There there are several people that we expect to testify, uh, including Bernie Couric, but he's going to be testifying before the grand jury as we understand it in a, a month, like next month. Does that mean we are really far away from actually seeing whether or not Donald Trump is indicted? Can you continue to do this after indicting him or no?
4: So we don't exactly know what's happening because everything that happens in the grand jury by law is secret. But yes, the answer is yes. We don't know if Jack Smith is going to bring a sweeping indictment or a very limited indictment. You know, this could be an indictment of many defendants, including people like Mark Meadows, Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, Mr. Cheesebrook. You know, there's lots of people who were part of this conspiracy And Jack Smith might be bringing this multi-defendant sweeping indictment or he might do a very limited indictment with just Donald Trump and and the three crimes that were listed in the target letter. We just don't know. But we do know there are multiple investigations going on and that this is a special grand jury that is going to continue past tomorrow. So it is possible that there could be a limited, discreet indictment of Donald Trump for the conduct on January 6th and the months before and the conduct after, you know, all, all of the things that, that we've talked about and uh, continuing investigation in the grand jury for other individuals, other crimes, other potential defendants, even potentially other charges against Donald Trump. and potentially even a superseding indictment. So yes, that could. That doesn't mean we have to wait for an indictment.
0: Interesting um, that it can continue to go along because you don't know how far they're going and whether they'll charge one case and then another and a bunch of other people. We know that Donald Trump has gotten a target letter, um, Jim. We know that Rudy Giuliani up to this point has said he has not gotten a target letter and no one else has come forward saying that they have gotten a target letter. What does that tell you?
3: Look, I think what it tells me is they were putting the former president... On notice, right? That he they were zeroing in on him in this particular case. We don't know if anyone else has received the target letter. It might not be in their interest to tell that they've received the target letter. Those folks may be cooperating. So there is a lot of things that we don't know because of the secrecy of the grand jury, Mm. and I think it's it's entirely plausible that other people may have received that. I would be really surprised that they would bring that they would that Jack Smith would bring an indictment that didn't have all the facts locked down as it relates to the former president. And we saw the way that he brought the last indictment. It was a very compelling indictment, specific facts. The former president caught on tape. Those are the kinds of things that you need in order to bring a case like this against a former sitting president.
0: Um, This is, you know, it could be huge. And if it is a very big sort of all-encompassing case... This could take a really long time
4: to try, could it not? Yes, absolutely. And, and it probably would not happen before the election if this, is go- if this is the big, sweeping, huge case with many defendants. I mean, there's many reasons a case could get adjourned. You know, people's schedules, motions that are made. Every defendant has their own motion that they want to make. Then some issues apply to one and not others. And so I, I think if, if the goal is to have a trial before the election, I think this, we, we, we might see a, a limited a very discreet, limited case uh, coming down.
0: Could they bring charges after that, though? Could they do this, discrimin- this very s- sort of limited case and then say, oh, the grand jury also found this, 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 and this? Is mean, that unusual?
4: It, it just depends, okay. right? You know, it just depends. Yes, you, c- you can bring could multiple right. indictments of, of, of mul- you know, the same conduct and the same incident should probably be brought together. But if there are other incidents that they look at, that could be brought separately or other, other defendants.
0: Karen? Jim? Thank you both so much uh, for your analysis here. It is um, very interesting as tomorrow the grand jury meets again, as we understand it. All right. Let's talk about all of this with senior uh, political commentator Scott Jennings and Mark McKinnon, former advisor to George W. Bush and John McCain. Mark, I'm going to start with you. Um, You always wear that great hat and I'd love to see it. The grand jury is expected to to meet tomorrow, as I mentioned. Um, Howdy. It's been eight days, I think, since Donald Trump got his target letter from the special counsel, and Trump's closest rivals are sort of tiptoeing around him. They're not going for the jugular, uh, except for with the exception of Chris Christie. How does this help them in the in the primaries?
1: It doesn't. They're trying to have it both ways, and it just it never works. And uh, but they're afraid of of turning off Trump's base, which of course is you know, add it up any way you want to, but it's a significant part of the Republican primary voters. So their fear is that they're going to turn off the voters that can elect them in the primary. And so they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. But I I just think that ultimately what may happen is that as strong as he is, uh, a lot of this is just about sort of defending their guy. And as soon as we see enough public polling over time, when there's a third or a fourth indictment, They're going to start to see that this guy is not going to win a general election, that he's going to be a loser as the nominee. And I think ultimately that could affect his numbers going into Iowa and New Hampshire.
0: Scott, do you agree?
5: Yeah, I do, actually. I think what the other candidates are are hoping for, frankly, and I know hope is not a strategy, but I think they're hoping for is that eventually the weight of all this just drags Trump down to Mark's point, to the point where voters say, look, I love the guy. I love everything he did. I just don't want to do it again because he's so damaged. He can't win, and so they want to put themselves in a position to be able to pick up the pieces. And they think by not alienating Trump's voters today, uh, they might be able to do that. Uh, but this is a total, you know, bank shot kind of strategy, and it's a lot of a lot of hope and prayers uh, that things fall your way that you don't really have control over. One other issue I think that's plaguing the campaigns is they don't know anything. I mean, we know what's reported. We know that indictments may come sometime. Well, we've not seen the charges. We don't know the evidence. And you remember on the documents case, uh, some campaigns got out there and got ahead of it and commented on it. Then the evidence came out in the indictment and then they had to roll back what they initially said. So my advice to a campaign would be to maybe keep your powder as dry as possible until you see what's in there. Because one thing about our reporting tonight, we didn't know about this meeting. Right. And it makes me wonder, what else does Jack Smith know that we don't know? And, uh, and if you're running a presidential campaign, you don't want to comment on something before you've actually seeing what the public's going to see.
0: I want to mention what something that Donald Trump has posted on True Social. uh, Last night, he he lashed out once again, um, writing this. We are in the middle of a major political campaign for president of the United States. Have they looked at recent poll numbers? Why didn't they bring these ridiculous charges years before? Why did they wait to bring them now? A virtually unheard of scenario, prosecutorial misconduct, election interference, we've seen those before. Um, what do you think about this? Is this just him doing the thing he always does, which is fight back no matter what the what's going on, no matter what the evidence is against him?
1: Listen, this is the first time that I've heard anybody, uh, including Donald Trump, suggest that this has been slow rolled. I mean, for God's sakes, they, you know, we had the January 6th commission. We've had, uh, we've got four different prosecutors in state and federal jurisdictions going after him. So this is a, that's a very unique point of view that Donald Trump has just laid out there. That it's because of, of polling that, uh, that, that that that's affecting the timing on this in a way that uh, you know. I mean, I, I would just say that 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 the, the prior to this, the, the criticism has been that there's been too much prosecution too soon.
0: Scott, I do wonder if Donald Trump uh, sort of has a point in that. Um, he knows that the timing of it actually is really important because it needs to kind of be before the election. Is that how he's trying to spin this?
5: Well, he, look, he, this is the glue for the people that he has to hold together to win this primary. As long as this thing stays fragmented, as long as you have half the party that, that doesn't want to do Trump again fragmented among 9, 10, 11 people, this kind of rhetoric is the glue that keeps the half of the party that likes him together. The idea that this is all being done to persecute him, to persecute his voters. So this sort of rhetoric is his political strategy and has been noted many times. Winning the election is his legal defense. The campaign is the defense. The defense is the campaign. And this is all part of that. And as long as there's no consolidation in the field, Getting his group to stay together and not peel off of him is the name of the game. And so far, there's really no evidence that they are. And so I would uh, expect they'll keep pursuing those strategies that's kept them together so far.
0: I just want to quickly ask you a yes or no question to both you, uh, Mark, and you, Scott. Mitt Romney uh, has an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal where he basically says there are so many people in the field – that they are going to make it so it is impossible for anyone to win but Trump. That is the, the gist of what you're seeing there on your screen. Is he correct? We'll start with you, Mark.
1: Well, he's correct theoretically, but he's wrong practically. It'll just never happen.
0: Scott? Yeah,
5: he, he's right. Fragmentation is Donald Trump's best friend, but getting a bunch of rich donors to agree on anything Virtually impossible. So Godspeed, Mitt. He's right, but man, <laughs> I don't know how you pull it off.
0: <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you for, so much for that robust conversation. Appreciate you. Thank you. All right. Chicken. Now to this. The Israeli government passed a controversial law today that is dividing the country and flooding the streets with protesters. We will have a report from Jerusalem as to what is going on in Israel. Major developments out of Israel tonight. A newly passed law is stoking significant division and outrage throughout the country, with tens of thousands taking to the streets to protest for and against legislation that curtails the Supreme Court's power to block government decisions and check Prime Minister Netanyahu's power as well. Let's go to senior international correspondent Fred Pleitgen, who is in Jerusalem. I spent uh, quite a bit of time living there in Jerusalem. And I don't think I have ever, since 2012 at least, seen crowds this large uh, standing out and standing up for what they believe in, and especially up against the Israeli government. Can you tell me what this is all about and what you're expecting tomorrow?
6: Well, first of all, I think you're absolutely right, Sarah. I think this large and also this determined as well. I think there's a lot of Israelis who believe that democracy in this country is under threat. They think that... The law that was passed today, but also a flurry of other laws that the government wants to pass as well, which, you know, slowly is going to or or is supposed to curtail the powers of the Supreme Court. But not only that, it's also supposed to then make it easier for the government to change the makeup of the Supreme Court in this country as well. They believe that that is something that's really bad for Israeli democracy and really goes to the fundamentals, to the foundations of Israeli democracy and marginalizes a lot of people, uh, by the way, as well. We were at protests today where we saw tens of thousands of people turning out, but also a lot of minorities turning out as well. Like, for instance, the LGBTQ community here in Israel saying they fear that they could be in trouble uh, if the government is unchecked, especially with a far-right government that's in power right now. So to a lot of people, this goes to the core of what Israel is and definitely to the balance of power in this country.
0: Yeah, it's a really unusual moment uh, in... Israel's history. I do want to talk to you a bit about um, what is happening when it comes to military reservists. You're reporting that more than 10,000 reservists say they will refuse to serve in the military. And what people need to understand is your military service is required. Man and women are both required to serve as Israelis. How could that have an impact on Israel's security?
6: Massive impact. I think this is going to have one of the, or could have one of the biggest impacts. And it's something also, when we talked to protesters, they also said that this was a dangerous moment for for Israel and for its readiness uh, in case Israel gets attacked. I spoke to one young man who said that he was close to going to military service. It's three years uh, for, for young men, mandatory service here. And he said, look, of course, if there is a big war and Israel is attacked, everybody is going to show up. However, in general, Are people going to come out and still, in the same way, want to defend a country that they no longer feel is there for them or where the government they feel is trying to marginalize them? There were protesters who told me that that was an issue for them. You talked about those 10,000 reservists who came out and said that they were going to refuse to serve. They've been ripped into by Benjamin Netanyahu, also by the chief of the uh, military here as well. There's some other politicians who are also calling on people to still show up for their service. But today, when we were at these protests, Sarah... We saw a lot of military reservists wearing those T-shirts of the military reservists who were there with the protesters on the ground, some of them even getting into fights with police officers.
0: Yeah, it's a highly unusual situation. I can't say that enough. Um, Israelis, they've been protesting for about six months now. Why is Netanyahu doing this? I mean, what does it mean for uh, the ordinary Israeli?
6: Well, for the ordinary Israeli, it could have massive implications as far as the laws in this country is concerned, but also as far as moving this country further to the right is concerned. And one of the things that many people here are afraid of or are concerned about is that the government of the day, the government that's currently in power, could make fundamental changes here in this country that could impact all of society without being kept in check. And I think one of the things that people really need to realize is that Israel does not have a written constitution. And so the Supreme Court really, in many ways, was sort of the keeper uh, of of what this country should be about and about about a lot of those fundamentals. What we need to look at, for instance, is that the law that was uh, uh, passed today is a law... That will make it impossible for the Supreme Court to stop a lot of the legislative measures that the government wants to push through or any government wants to push through that is in power here in Israel. Right now, of course, you have Benjamin Netanyahu with a far right government with some ministers that many people believe will do things yeah. that are going to be highly detrimental to mm-hmm. certain parts of society. And that's why so many people are going out on the streets.
0: Fred Plyton, thank you so much for breaking that down for all of us. And you're live in my old haunt, Jerusalem. Appreciate your time. Thank you to the crew as well. President Biden signed a proclamation today establishing a national monument honoring Emmett Till. Up next, I'll speak with Till's cousin about what this moment means for their family. This week, as we saw a loud outcry from people concerned, the history of slavery in this country is being whitewashed in Florida by the state's Department of Education, a claim denied by Florida officials, including the governor. There is a move to honor and recognize the pivotal role the tragedy of one black American family had on our world. Tomorrow, President Biden is expected to announce the establishment of a national monument dedicated to Emmett Till. Till was visiting family in Mississippi in 1955 when two white men pulled him from his bed and marched him out of his home after a woman accused Emmett of whistling at her. Three days later, Till's bloated and mutilated body was pulled from the Tallahatchie River. When it came time for the funeral, his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, said she wanted America to see what racist hate had done to her son. That decision and his case was a pivotal moment that helped spark the civil rights movement. Nearly 70 years later, several states will now have monuments built to remember him and his family. Joining me now is Emmett Till's cousin and the co-founder of the Emmett Till Legacy Foundation, Deborah Watts. Thank you so much for being here, Deborah.
2: Well, thank you for having me, Sarah.
0: Deborah, I know you remember this. We met in Minneapolis. Um, it was a chance meeting during the weeks-long protests after George Floyd was killed by a police officer. Uh, obviously, the fight for civil rights not over, but can you tell me what this moment means when you hear that there will be now recognition in public spaces of this momentous importance of the of the Till's family and their tragedy?
2: Yes, well, you know, it's an exciting time, and it's one that's I think well overdue, we have been uh, in our own spaces, our our uh, foundations, our cousins and other family members have taken it upon themselves to recognize, preserve that history and to make sure that people were aware. But now at this level, at the highest level of our country, our leader in this country has decided that these are pivotal, uh, pivotal, Oh, I'm sorry. I can't even say
7: it right. <laughs>
2: Places that need to be recognized and preserved um, and protected. I think that is uh, what's what's really important. So we have nothing but, but just joy, uh, gratitude uh, towards all the hard work that has gone in to starting with my family and others who have come on board um, and these the organizations that are going to make sure that this happens. And you know we're we're excited also because we know that it's time that we even have a seat at the table that our family has a seat at the table so that the erasure, the reimagining of the truth, uh, is not retold in a way that it removes the dignity, the sacrifice, and uh, the horrific nature of what happened there because we don't want that repeated, and so we want to make sure that we have a, that opportunity. Uh, to sit with those that are making those decisions about what these narratives will be saying in these important places. Uh, And there's so many others as well, too, Sarah, that um, in Mississippi will be even uh, traveling to uh, this August on the 68th anniversary of Emmett's uh, murder uh, to make sure that people understand what those places mean on that journey that he took. You mentioned you
0: mentioned something Deborah that that, that is uh, very salient for the time that we're in now. There's a lot of discussion about what's happening with Florida's uh, school board with what's happening with what what some people look at as, as whitewashing uh, the horrific nature of slavery. What do you worry about now and in the context of the fact that now uh, your cousin Emmett Till will be recognized for what happened? going, even to this day, the sort of, you know, march towards civil rights? Well, you know, we
2: have always understood that that march and that struggle um, needs to continue, that the stories need to be told, that the voices, so important to have the more authentic voices uh, telling those stories, the witnesses and those that are part of the family and others. um, uh, That's important. And so that has not been in the textbooks of our today's educational system. So we know that we'll have to continue doing all of the hard work that we've done before. Even though there's a resistance to make sure that this is part of the curriculum in our education system, there's a resistance to the the unmitigated truths about what happened back then. So we have to continue doing all of the work that we've done before. We know that the struggle continues. And so we can't ignore the resistance, but we definitely um, have, I think, the energy and inspiration behind uh, us with Mamie Till sacrifice sacrifices and her courage to move us forward.
0: Can you tell me what you remember And you know, back um, when you were around Mamie? Um, what do you remember about her, about all of the things that the family sort of went through? What did you go through? What did your mother go through?
2: Well, you know... It was a, I believe, for Mamie, it was, and our, our family just were, were in awe of just her dignity, her courage, and it was her story to tell. It was her struggle to fight. She led, and I believe, laid this blueprint for all of us to be in awe of and to watch, and to watch her stand before crowds of people, to Tell her truth through her pain and her tragedy, but then also moving forward towards justice for Emmett Till. So it was nothing but pride, and you know, Mamie was my Shiro. Um, and I believe is for a lot of other people as well, particularly those in the Emmett Till generation. So she um I think just took that, you know, took that those reins, moved things forward for this country made some decisions that i think woke up america you could not deny what was happening back then because of her decision to have an open casket funeral so i you know nothing but pride nothing but just being in awe of her and also just understanding that her faith pushed her through as well and her village provided those opportunities uh, for her to, to take those platforms and, and stand in her truth.
0: Yeah, seeing uh, the mother's pain, um, any mother can, no matter what color, can, can understand what that is, um, and she certainly did it with grace, um, but also it was a heavy weight for the family for so long. And I know you were looking for justice, um, and justice never arrived, but um, I thank you for coming on the show uh, and discussing this with us, and we will be waiting to see um, what those monuments are. They're going to be in three different places, um, and I'm sure that you'll be there, so we will discuss that with you when that happens. Okay, thank you very much. Thank Thank you. you so much, Deborah. All right. Now to the disturbing encounter between a 23 year old black truck driver in Ohio and police and their canine. What happened when the truck driver dropped to his knees with his hands up? We have the video and a robust discussion about driving while black coming up next. Tonight, there's growing outrage after the release of Police body camera footage of a traffic stop that led to a police canine attacking a driver in Ohio. I need to warn you that this footage is really disturbing. All right, here it is. It shows an unarmed black driver being mauled by a police dog after dropping to his knees with his hands up. Authorities in Ohio pulled over this 23-year-old truck driver on July 4th after a lengthy police chase that allegedly started over a missing mud flap on that 18-wheeler. The driver of the truck told emergency dispatchers he thought police were going to kill him, so he was slow to pull over. Once he's out of that vehicle with his hands up, you can hear a sergeant telling the officer that has the canine not to release the dog multiple times, but the canine's released anyway. CNN's Isabel Rosales has more details for us.
8: Um, I was about to comply with them, but they all had their gun drawn out for whatever reason.
7: A newly released 911 call made by a semi truck driver during a lengthy police chase reveals why he wouldn't exit the vehicle.
8: I don't know why they're trying to kill me.
7: They're not trying to kill you.
8: Yes, they are. Obviously, they're throwing stuff in the, on the ground trying to explode the
7: tire. Officers attempted to stop 23 year old Jadarius Rose in a commercial semi truck on July 4th because of a missing mud flap according to a case report by the Ohio State Highway Patrol.
8: It's like 20 police cars behind me, and don't feel safe.
7: The video shows Rose did initially pull over, but didn't get out of the truck, and instead continued back onto the highway, with multiple law enforcement cars seen joining the chase. Eventually, Rose pulls over and exits the truck, surrounded by multiple officers and a Circleville police canine unit that stopped to assist. You can hear contradictory verbal commands from the officers. Come to me! A trooper can also be heard instructing the canine officer. Do not release the dog with his hands up. Do not release the dog with his hands up. Despite repeated warnings from the state trooper, the dog is released and runs toward the officers before turning to Rose and attacking him. It's not clear if the canine officer could hear the warning. Get the dog off of him! Get, get, get it out!
9: Get it out.
7: Rose cries out as officers are yelling for a first aid kit, and he's later seen being treated by the officers. Rose was taken to the hospital and then released back to police. The Circleville Police Department and mayor confirmed in a statement that a use of force review board was convened immediately and is reviewing the incident. Rose's attorney declined to comment to CNN, but Nana Watson, president of the NAACP's Columbus branch, calls the Circleville canine officer's behavior, quote, barbaric. Those young people that
2: perhaps don't understand the meaning of a dog being unleashed on a black person, it is history. This country watched as Bull Connor unleashed dogs and hoses on black people because they were marching for their rights in this country.
7: The Ross County Prosecutor's Office tells CNN that Rose was released from custody on July 7th. That's three days after his arrest. Right now, that office is working still. They tell us to gather the evidence and to determine whether to move forward with a charge against Rose. That charge would be failure to comply with an order or signal by a police officer. That is a felony. Sarah.
0: Thank you to our Isabel Rosales. You just heard Darius Rose telling a dispatcher he wasn't pulling over because he didn't feel safe and his fears were realized. Joey Jackson and John Miller are here with me. I want to know what this tells you, but hold on, we'll get an answer from the both of you after the break. All right, as you just saw in our last segment, an unarmed black man with his hands in the air was attacked by a police canine, despite another law enforcement officer repeatedly telling him not to release the dog. Let's bring in CNN's law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. Also, CNN legal analyst and criminal defense attorney, Joey Jackson. All right, first, I want before you jump in here, I want to play part of Jadarius Rose's 911 call. Let's listen to that. <laughs>
8: I don't know why they got their guns drawn out for whatever reason. I'm going to deliver this load. They tried to throw spikes down at this truck for whatever reason. I don't know why. You
4: need to pull over. You're going to get yourself in more trouble than what you're already in. I
8: don't know why they're trying to kill
4: me. They're not trying to kill you.
8: Yes, they are. Because I do not feel safe with stock now.
0: Okay, so he says, I don't feel safe with stopping. We understand this was over a mud flap, so he may not have known what he was being pulled over for, obviously. Does the dispatcher, and this is to you, John, have a duty to tell the officers on the ground, hey, this guy is worried he's going to be killed. He's worried. He's very fearful. Do they get that information from dispatch?
10: So they may get some of that. It depends what she's typing in, if it's coming out on this screen or if she's putting it over the radio. We actually haven't heard that part, but... You know, we have arrived at the middle of a bad judgment convention where everybody is playing. You have somebody driving an 18-wheeler who's getting pulled over from flap by a police agency whose exact job is to do that. It's the state police truck inspector who's supposed to be looking for safety violations. Instead of pulling over, he continues for 35 minutes. It speeds up to 70-something miles an hour. So you have to factor in, before we start at the end, which is the dog is released and bites him. You have to factor in what's going through their minds, and what's going through their minds is questions, which is why why is there a truck driver driving a massive vehicle who's trying to evade us, who's refusing to stop? When we throw down spike, you know, when when he does stop, he takes off again. When we throw down spike strips and disable him, you know, he gets out and he's very slow to follow these commands. Their minds are racing for what's really going on here and what's the threat, And then as he's complying, of course, the canine officer releases the dog. That's wrong, but that's wrong at the end of the story. And you see somebody saying, don't release the dog while his hands are up. You hear it. But he's 125 feet away. We're hearing him on the microphone of his body camera. Those two officers by the cab of the truck who are yelling these commands are screaming different commands at him. So what you have here is a tactical situation where there isn't one person who's got command and control.
0: Nobody's in command. Nobody's in charge. Everyone is in charge with yeah. so the problem. It's, it's a mess. It's a mess. So, Joey, does the, as a defense attorney, yes. turn that person on yes. now? Um, does is there a case here for this gentleman who you can hear it all—the confusion going on—but yeah. he didn't stop.
9: Yeah, I don't think there's any question there's a case, and here's why. Number one, it's a mud flap, okay? It's a mud flap. He's not leaving the scene of a crime in any particular way. I understand what John's saying, and it informs the judgment with respect to him continuing to go and not complying. But at the end of the day, they do get compliance. He gets out of the truck, he has his hands up, and you have him calling the police. On the police. Clearly, he didn't stop because of the fact that he did not trust the police officers. What does that say about the state of play right now? And so when you have a person who's compliant, not a person who's aggressive, not a person who's giving the indication that he's going to attack the police, that he's going to engage in vicious behavior towards the police, what becomes the justification for unleashing the dog? You have to justify what you're doing. Does it make sense tactically? Does it make sense from a common sense perspective? Does it makes sense at all from any perspective, and I think not. And so, when you have a situation where it's a mud flap, when you have a situation where a person's hands are up, when you have a situation where a person does not represent a danger, when you have a situation where other police officers are saying, saying don't, don't do, do it, it, it becomes a problem. Should not have happened. And boy, I, you know, there's without question, there needs to be accountability here.
0: There's something that is awry. Yes. John Miller, thank you.
10: I Uh-oh. would say, did I just lose a case to Joey Jackson no. like, at I, I, midnight? I, I actually think it, it John Miller doesn't lose <laughs> cases. I'm, I'm Let me tell you where this is going. Which sorry, is, John. They will not pursue this prosecution in order. This is what Joey Jackson would do. Mm. They will not pursue this prosecution in order to get his cooperation against the police officer in the disciplinary um, project, which is starting up right now uh. with their use of force board. Because they'll need a civil case. Right.
0: And there will likely be a civil case, which they may well settle, as often happens. Absolutely. Because I've been covering that. Joey Jackson, John Miller, I appreciate both of you. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for watching. Our coverage continues.